right friendship, marriage, uh, as a sister and a brother in Christ with an appropriate loving relationship in the context of the church, which I think is very important that maybe we don't give enough time and thought to. You should have right, appropriate relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. You should treat one another with appropriateness, but like family. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. Taking a break from our Ephesians study in order that we may give a little bit of time to the value and beauty and provide some hopefully practical instruction for mothering in the home. Even more so than providing practical instruction for mothers is we'll see that this fundamental instruction is a priority for all. I was informed this morning that my sermon title, Rare Beauty, is a line of makeup that was not intentional. In fact, I'm not ashamed I didn't know that. Uh, I was informed that this morning. <clears throat> There's no correlation. You will, you will perceive clearly <clears throat> the beauty in the passage. I have, um, I have seven points this morning, but we're, we'll move efficiently, we'll move quickly. Seven observations about this priceless lady in, chapter thir- in Proverbs 31. This past week I was on social media and I saw a video that was fascinating. You all are of course familiar with the, the source of where we get pearls, you know, they, they come from something ugly. Something beautiful comes from something pretty ugly. ugly. No one opens up an oyster, throws the pearl away, and then puts the oyster on, you know, maybe their shelf or certainly not their necklace. But I saw this video, and I believe it, I believe it happened somewhere in um, Malaysia. It was, certainly, it was certainly that part of the country, and I, th- I believe that's what the caption said. And it was, a, it was a lady who apparently did this for a living, and she would go to, she would go to um, more remote parts of the sea, and she would get these massive oysters, I mean huge oysters. And so whoever was documenting this, uh, she took this oyster, she hit it on a rock and opened it up, and she began to pull out the largest golden pearls you've ever seen. I mean, they were, they were huge, and they were shining gold. And she was, the oyster was massive. It was the biggest ma- oyster I've ever seen. And she was literally, I mean, just digging around in the muck. I mean, she had her hands in the grossness. And, and they're slimy, and they're sticky. And how many of you eat oysters? All right, what about, what about the raw ones? Yeah, I mean, you have to be a certain kind of crazy to do that. But, <laughs> but she was just going to town, and she was finding... By the time she was done, she was rolling out her hand, and there were like 11 
massive gold pearls that she'd found in this oyster. I mean, that's a pretty good day's work. I don't know, I guess I'm not sure what that brings in, but seems like it would be a good day's work. But there's this pure beauty in the midst of this grossness, this muck. And in this passage this morning, God provides for us beauty in the midst of an impure atmosphere. God gives universal truths for all of time that as we find ourselves in a culture of sin, and as this was written in a culture of sin because sin has so affected our time, we, we see God's definition of true purity and true beauty. And certainly as we live in a, a culture and an atmosphere of radical self-liberation movements, and we live in a kind of philosophical muck, we recognize that God still defines the beauty in all things. In our text this morning, we see a priceless treasure, a pearl shining in the muck. And even more importantly, what produced that beauty? Now, I'll say one other thing by way of introduction, and that's just to give you some general information about how to think about this book. Proverbs is an interesting book. It's a fascinating book. It is general godly wisdom for our living. And though there is no really explicit, even in this passage, and I I would argue in most of the book, there's no explicit reference to gospel. Like here's the person of Christ and here's what he's going to do. There's really no messianic references like you'll find in the Psalms. The way that the New Testament gives us a category for wisdom assures us that everything that we will hear today and that we'll discuss today is only available through the wisdom that God provides. And if you if you go all the way back to the first chapter, so we're in, the, we're in the final chapter, if you go back to the first proverb, what does the writer say? What does Solomon say to his son? That, that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And actually what we'll find in the conclusion of this book, these proverbs, is that the emphasis is going to conclude with the fear of the Lord. And you'll see that in just a few moments. You say, well, how is this wisdom then available? Because we live in a world that wants wisdom, wants knowledge, wants practical information for how to navigate life. Well, Paul provides for us a certainty in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where he calls Jesus the wisdom of God. So in Proverbs, wisdom is personified and imaged for us. In Proverbs 1, it's personified to us in the the, the picture, the form of, of an attractive and, and, and godly woman, lady wisdom in Proverbs 1. But, but Paul, Paul is going to provide for us this assurance in 1 Corinthians 1 that Jesus is wisdom realized. And so if you really want to grow in wisdom, you grow in your knowledge of the person of Christ. You continue along in this sanctification or Christian progress process. 
And so let me just say from the outset that all of this that we'll be dealing with this morning is assuming we're working with information reserved for believers in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, all of this information that I give is just more opportunity for you to apply knowledge without spiritual life. So as the Spirit makes the heart alive to belief in Christ and regeneration to new life in Christ, that's what makes this wisdom not only possible, but livable and practical and purposeful. And so having said those things, I'm not going to read the entirety of the text. We're going to read it as we go along. I want to show you that in this text, truest beauty is not found in the favor of man, but in the fear of God. Well, as I mentioned, we have several points to work through this morning. Today is going to be more, I'm going to give you a point. We're just going to kind of talk through to the next point. So it'll be uh, more, more kind of an overview expository than actually kind of digging down deep. We have an entire chapter to work through. So as I mentioned this morning, you'll find that true beauty is only found in the favor of man, and you'll see that as we go along, but more even specifically as we conclude. Just to give you a little bit of context information here, you note in chapter, or you note in verse 1 of Proverbs 31, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle or, or a message that his mother taught him. Um, Lemuel probably is not a Jew, so, so ancient uh, uh, views regarding this text that this is probably someone who is not Jewish. We're not exactly sure who he is, but he's not identified in any Jewish way or having any Jewish lineage. There's, there's, uh, there's great reason to believe historically that he is a God-fearer and not in the land of Israel. But whoever this is, he receives God's wisdom, and note the source of this wisdom is through his mother. And so we get this context that, that it's from a, someone who has been given God's wisdom through a godly woman, and she provides right off the very, from, from the introduction, right off the very bat, uh, some questions, some probing questions, some thought-provoking questions. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? This verse communicates to us the weight of her concern. My son, this intimacy, one that I bore. I, so it, it communicates the gravity of her care for, for him. And son of my vows, things that she's prayed over, dedicated on behalf of her son. So there's this natural care, the bearing of the child, and there's this spiritual care what she's prayed and vowed on his behalf. So she begins by challenging him with these questions. And then the passage will turn from instruction to general description. And so let's first of all begin with her instruction. We note in verses 3 through 5 that she teaches moral parameters. She teaches moral parameters. Now, let me just say this as well. The instruction that I'm about to give, while it is most fully in its intent and probably in its practicality within the context of the home, everything that we work with here is something that can be taught on a spiritual discipleship basis. I know there are some of you that the Lord has not given natural children, and so you have adopted some spiritually as your own. 
And these are the, the same kinds of things that you can do in your home and provide as spiritual mothering in the context of the church and discipleship. Note first that she gives moral parameters. Look at what she says in verse 3. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Note in verse 3 that obviously the point is not to avoid interactions with women as she instructs her son so much as she instructs him to have instructs him to have instructs him excuse me to have right interactions with women and the way that god defines the right kind of woman with whom he should interact in other words don't give your strength to those outside of god's intention or Im- immorality don't have relationships with ladies this is instruction to her son that will be detrimental to you Have relationships with ladies who walk with the Lord and in the way of the Lord, the way that God has ordained and within the parameters that God has ordained. Right friendship, marriage, uh, as a sister and a brother in Christ with an appropriate loving relationship in the context of the church, which I think is very important that maybe we don't give enough time and thought to. You should have right, appropriate relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. You should treat one another with appropriateness, but like family. And this verse provides direct context within the, it has a direct context within the book as, as the book will give us several women that sons should not hang around, chapter 5 and chapter 7, and several kinds of ladies that we should, be, we should be discipling our daughters and our younger sisters in Christ to avoid becoming at all costs. Chapter 5, the lips, this is verses 3 through 5, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. It sounds so good. It tastes so good. It's so smooth. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. Listen, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. The mother to Lemuel is saying, I'm trying to give you life. Have good relationships the way God intended with women. Avoid people like this, chapter 5. Why the forbidden woman? They'll kill you. Literally. You'll end up in the land of death. Chapter 7, verse 24 to 27. And now, sons, listen to me. This is, this is Solomon. And, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her. That's the immoral woman in chapter 7. Her ways do not stray to her paths. For many a victim she has laid low. And all are slain by her mighty throng. Her house is the way to the way of death. Going down to the chambers of death. So these specific images in chapter 5 and in chapter 7 are, are ones who can lead you away with immorality. But, but other advice is given on the general care that a lady takes for her home and respect that she has for other humanity. Chapter 21, verse 9, it is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a shared house with a quarrelsome wife. In other words, it's better that you have a little bit of room than a lot of room with someone who is hard to live with. 
Better to live in a desert, 2119, than, in a, than with a quarreling, an angry woman. Chapter 27, verse 15 and 16, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. What an image. To restrain her, listen, is to restrain the wind, wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. In other words, it can't be done. She's out of control. And so this provides instruction for us as we disciple, and mothers as you disciple daughters and and older sisters in Christ, as you disciple younger sisters in Christ, as you adopt them as spiritual daughters, that that they are to adopt a, a morality that is appropriate interaction with men that is appropriate and kind and pure and uplifting as men are to 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 respect and and cherish and protect ladies this is the first consideration of the proverbs 31 woman that she teaches moral parameters for her children both in their moral life and their personal disciplines It is not for kings to drink wine or to take strong drink, lest they forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all who afflicted it. In other words, be disciplined in your life and take care for your morality. The mother's primary concern for her son here is a moral concern, and so should ours be, and so should yours be, mom. It also says something about the kind of daughters we should be raising And the young ladies, you young ladies, should be uh, avoiding that you may become yourself and those around you that you may call influences or friends. Young ladies or young women or women in general who delight to show off in ways they shouldn't show off and be contentious in ways they shouldn't be contentious and desire self-liberation when Christ calls us to a life of service. Some of us have young children and one day, and, and, you have, and, and some of you, and you have teenagers and you're, you're already thinking about their spouse and you're already praying for their spouse. This provides incredibly important parameters as you disciple your children to one day meet people that they desire to have serious relationships with. What have that individual that your, your, young, that your teenager takes interest in, that your young adult, your college student takes interest in, what priorities do they have? How are they protecting themselves spiritually and in their purity? Do they live at peace with people? Do they live at peace with authority? You can be certain that my wife will have a say when my son starts having crushes. If he's allowed to. (laughs) You know, it's amazing the difference between mom and dads regarding their sons and their daughters. At least maybe in my home. I'm not going to speak universally in my home. You better not even look at my daughter the wrong way, son. If you have the slightest bit of interest in your eyes, you know, I'll smack you. Not really, but you get my point. Don't even look at my daughter. But if my son comes and says, hey, she's cute, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Better be polite to her. <laughs> I remember the first time, I'll never forget the first time my son hugged a little girl. We were back, we were with the Costillas, it was Audrey. 
they were saying goodbye, and Leighton goes over, and he hugs her, and he takes a step back, and he just looks at her. And he had the biggest, like, awe and smile on his face. And he turns and looks at me like, whoa! (laughs) And, of course, Oscar then chased him off, right? (laughs) But in all seriousness, mom and dad, you need to be involved. Because that person could destroy your child. That person could destroy your child. Her way is the way of death. But that boy, he better be respectful. He better have compassion. As, I mean, not perfect, but you, know, you get what I'm saying. He better respect authority. Moral parameters for your children. It's her first concern. I better, I better get going. We got point number two. We got, we got a long way to go. These next three verses, verses are interesting, but I want to make sure you understand them. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. This is the idea of giving alcohol for medicinal purposes. Obviously, their, their you know, health care options were few at this time. And so when one was suffering later in life, Strong drink would be used. Let them forget, let them drink and forget their poverty. Remember their misery no more. Listen, you say, what in the world are verses 6 and 7 talking about? Just keep going. It's made very clear for you. Open your mouth for the mute and for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. She opens her hands, this is verse 20, to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. So, First of all, she teaches moral parameters. Secondly, she teaches compassion for the poor and needy. She teaches compassion. She has a heart for those who, who, are, who have a hard time caring for themselves. It's been said in a, in a pretty popular uh, um, current literature series, if you want to know the measure of a man, don't pay attention to care, how about how he cares for his equals. Pay attention, to care, uh, pay attention to how he cares for his inferiors. And, and, and the wise mother here is teaching her children to care for inferiors. Those who have less means. Those who may be suffering in life. Those who have uh, natural causes that, 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 that inhibit them. Caring for the poor and needy. And in other words, in her motherhood, it's important to her that she teaches compassion. If one was dying and suffering and they they had no resource, give them something to help them suffer. That's verses 6 and 7. If if they're needy and you can care for this need in a certain way, extend yourself. Mothers, teach compassion in your children. Give them a heart and a view for others. Fathers, evidence this in your own life. Several months ago, I was at work. My wife called me and said, this is weird, but I think we should do it. Um, uh, we, there was a homeless man on the side of the road, and we, we typically, you know, not typically, we have often, you know, we'll grab a meal or something. This particular time, Julia was in a hurry. She had an appointment. And Everly saw this man on the side of the road, and she really wanted us to help this 
person. But Julia just couldn't stop. So she told Everly, I'll call daddy and see what he can do. And I'm so thankful my wife did that because we could have just said, now we don't have time today, honey. We'll maybe get it next time. But she actually took a a moment to say, all right, Everly, this is an important thing and we're going to reaffirm that. Compassion for those maybe socially or by physical parameters or limitations, ways that they cannot care for themselves. This is the heart of God. True religion is to care for the widows and the fatherless. This is the heart of God. And the mother reproduces that heart into the lives of her children. Moving on, verses 10 and 12, you note that this is where the passage transitions from from, from instruction to description in verses 1 through 9 it is the mother giving instruction in verses 10 through 12 it is Lemuel giving a description of the mother okay it's like it almost goes from from this idea of of her teaching to him reflecting this is who she was this is what she said and this is who she is it's like it goes from precepts her precepts her teaching to a portrait of her And this is the beauty in the passage, verse 10. This is the rare beauty. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and she will have no lack of gain. She does good to him and not harm all the days of her life. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. My dad, when he was picking out the ring for my, wa- my mom, got her a diamond surrounded by rubies so that she would think what Solomon says, that her price is far above rubies. She's more excellent than jewels. There's no one, there's no beauty like this. And, I, and I'm really not being funny. I'm really not making a joke, okay? I'm being serious. Men who understand your wife and love your wife and are loved well by your wife and you've seen this in your relationship. I mean, there's nothing I would agree more with than verse 10. There is nothing more beautiful in my life than my wife. And I'm not even just speaking physically you know the value and beauty of this kind of relationship. There's nothing more beautiful than this. And young ladies, let me just tell you, pursue this. Pursue this kind of beauty, the beauty of the heart that flows from fear of God. Do not become distracted by what the world tells you you need to be attractive the way they need the way the world can define it an excellent wife who can find she's far more precious than jewels there's no value like this note verse 12 she does good to her husband she treats him well she speaks to him well she speaks of him well and note the affection that she has for him in verse 11 
or that, she, that he has for her. Her husband trusts in her. This is not one-sided. It's honor and goodness. It's a mutual goodness. The heart of her husband is drawn to her and trusts her because of her goodness towards him. And of course, we understand it works the other way around. She's priceless. There's no beauty like this. One day, even though I joke about it, maybe I'm not joking, but one day, I have two daughters. And some guy is going to think he has the gall to date one of them. And if I and mom, if we do our jobs right as a disciple maker, I'll be able to look at him and say, I'm giving you one of the most beautiful things that I could. Actually, I'm giving you one of the most beautiful things that God could give you. So you better watch yourself. Because she's got lots of brothers and sisters at Christ at church. And they'll never find the body. You know what I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But what an incredible thing. What a beautiful thing. There's no value like this. She provides. Verses 13 to 15. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. Now, she's not literally captaining the ships, okay? She's like a ship bringing food. She rises wild as yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She provides for her home. Now, at this point, you could begin to read this and just be like, all right, this is impossible. There's no way this is happening. Faithfulness one day at a time. That's how we live our lives, right? But note the heart behind this. It doesn't say she's never missed a day. This is what she does. And it's going to work towards why. All of these things have a spiritual value, but note that she provides for her home. It's important to note regarding the question of moms who work outside the home, even extensively, Proverbs 31 actually images for us a woman working outside the home for the benefit of her work inside the home. Can a mom work outside the home is the wrong question. The question is, who is she working primarily to benefit this lady worked, she, she made and she sold and she got and she gained and she, saw, uh, she was busy with work. But in Proverbs 31, her benefit outside the home was funneled directly back into the home. She worked out there so she could do the best work. Loving children. Raising children and nurturing in the home. Listen, I fully support ladies working outside the home so they can work inside the home. But you know what's impossible? You know what's impossible? A career woman who's constantly making sacrifices and the first thing to go is family. That's not reconcilable with the godly view of the home. It's just not. And by the way, 
it's not reconcilable for the man either. So man, husbands, if you're workaholic, trying to pay the bills, get the next promotion, get the next promotion, get the next promotion, try to pay the bills. That's a biblical provision. That's what you're supposed to do. But if you're a career man giving up everything at home first, it's not being a godly dad. It's not being a godly husband. Inventory your time. If your kids ask you to be home more, be home more. Proverbs 31, her benefit outside the home is intended to benefit inside the home. And that will be continued to be made plain. As I noted, this may seem like it's, a, it's an impossible standard, but remember what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says that the woman is to be the manager of the household. She's to manage the household. This is not a subversion of male headship. It's a wise treatment of the home. I will be the first to tell you, my wife is a better, better home manager than me. She just is. And I'm pretty task-oriented and organized and calendar-oriented. Do you know why my kids ask mom where stuff is? Because she knows. Do you know why I say wherever mom says it is? Because I don't. Our wives manage the home, and, 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 and mom is a good and efficient manager. And so don't read this and go, there's no way I can do these things. Just live faithfully one day at a time. So she provides, verses 16 through 19. Again, it's apparent that she's working outside. And if you, that's just a decision you need to make within the culture of your family. She's profitable. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. I mean, that's crazy. It's like, hey, there's some grass here. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to make it a garden. Good for her. She dresses herself with strength and make her, makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the, the distaff and holds it against the spindle. In other words, she's making textiles. And again, I want to make sure you note the intent of her work rather than the extent of her work because what you could do is read it and, and see this impossible bar that you'll never reach and say, that's too much. I can't do it. And the, 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 the question is, are you doing it the right way and for the right reason and, why, and the right spirit? So not so much how much are you doing, but why are you doing it? Avoid the comparison of life that motherhood and being a wife naturally causes and certainly don't fall prey to comparison curated by social media accounts that display the messy as avoidable and, the, and material as ideal. Endeavor to keep the intent of your work godly and be patient as God matures the extent of your work. Be concerned about why you're doing it first. And let God take care of how much. Which, by the way, is an excellent way to live life no matter what. It's an when I think about church, do you know what I think about? The depth of our ministry, not the breadth of it. I want you to know God and love God. So we're going to talk about the Word of God. And that is my concern before how many seats we can fit in the seats. 
Let's let God take care of the extent. And let's just worry about the intent. So she's profitable. She's prepared. Verses 21 to 25. She's not afraid of snow for her household. All her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings. She's, just, she's constantly working. Look at the verse 23. This is interesting. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Verse 24. He goes right back to talking about her provision. Provision. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. So he moves into verses 21 and 22 to talk about her provision and then says what he says in verse 23 about her husband being known and then goes right back to the concept of provision. Why does he do this? Because he wants us to see the point that her success at home is resulting in their success as a family. Her investment at home causes her, the reputation of her husband to be even better. He's known, at the, he's known in the gates when he sits among the elders. Why? Because the faithfulness of his wife has set him up to be more faithful in his calling. In other words, she makes him better. I would not be your pastor without my wife. And I don't say that as a point in my sermon because it's preaching material. I said it's because of reality. You wouldn't want me as your pastor without my wife. I'm serious. Good wives make their husbands better. Godly wives, I should say, make their husbands better. I heard David Jeremiah tell a story one time that he once knew of a company CEO and he and his wife were out for a drive in their sports car. Came time for them to get some fuel, so they stopped at a gas station. And while he was filling up, he noticed that his wife, who had gone in to get snacks, was interacting with the gas station clerk, and they seemed like they knew each other, and so when she came back out, he asked you know, how they knew each other, they seemed to know each other. He indicated this, and she said, yeah, we actually dated before we got married. And he said, I bet you're thinking, you're glad you upgraded and married a future CEO, and he's a gas station worker. And she said, actually, I was thinking if I married him, he would have ended up a CEO. <laughs> Godly wives make men better. And finally, and most importantly, she lives for what's primary. Her priorities are right. And what are her priorities? Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. What a beautiful verse. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and praises her. Many women have done excellently, he's quoting. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Verse 29, he's saying to his wife, there's no one like you. You're the best. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So first of all, in 26 to 28, her family is primary. Her family is primary. She's not distracted 
by lesser things. She gives her life to what is most important. And it's noted by her children, and her children grow up and brag on her. And her husband says, I mean, literally verse 29, you're the best. There's no one like you. He's astounded by her. Her family is primary. And note in verse 30 to 31, her faith is primary or her fear for God is primary. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What did Solomon say to open the book? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The book begins by noting the, re- the importance of fear for God and how it causes us to access the wisdom of God. And the book concludes in a different way, noting the importance of the fear of God and specifically within this context, in the reality of family. She does not live for what will not last. Do you see that? She does not live for what will not last. Favor will go away. The opinion of man, the charm of man, it's up and down, isn't it? And if you live for that, you'll be constantly disappointed and you'll be constantly fearful because all your value will be attached to the fluctuating opinions of people. And beauty is vain. It doesn't last. It goes away. It's a a function of this society. Now, I'm not saying don't care. It's okay. I'm really glad my wife's beautiful. But in light of eternity, live for what lasts. So what lasts and what makes all of this possible? Her fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. This word fear is awe and reverence that results in obedience and service. Fear and reverence that results in obedience and service. In verse 31, note her reward. Give her the fruit of her hands. Her investment will reap its own reward. It's enough. And let her works praise her in the gates. Her reputation speaks for itself. And why does it speak for itself? Because she fears the Lord and she lives for what lasts. In some cases, it is true that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I've attended some art museums where I look at a piece of art and I say that is the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And then I'll, I'll go to something else and it'll be a stripe and a spot and I'll stare at it and just not understand. And someone else will be gawking at it. Beauty, in many cases, is in the eye of the beholder. But as we live in a world that works so hard through philosophy and social media Instagram and the news to create such a narrow view of beauty, God causes us to ask a few questions. And so the question we have to ask here is if God is the beholder, how beautiful are you? If God is the beholder, 
in consideration of God's definitions of beauty. How beautiful are you? And again, remember, the reality of the fear of God is, is to be universal in all believers' lives. It's not reduced to just a good wife and a good mom from this passage, a virtuous woman. We're all to be fearing God. But in context of this passage and in consideration of this day, ladies, young ladies, moms now, grandmothers now, those who will be moms one day, young ladies who, who desire a good and healthy family relationship one day, truly if God beholds beauty in you, there can be no greater treasure and no richer value and no more lasting beauty than if God beholds you with this definition, fearing Him and living for what lasts. Let's pray.